All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am your host, Josh Patterson, and with me today, I have a returning guest, but I've already introduced them so many times that I'm going to introduce a different guest first because I have two friends with me today. <laughs> so the first person I'd like to introduce is Alexa Ord. Alexa, it's so nice to, uh, to finally meet you. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, it's sweet to, uh, I've heard, or I think I've, I might have interacted with you via email before, but I don't, we've never ever had like any kind of conversation or anything like yeah, that. So I'm, yeah, I'm excited well, for, for today. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, good deal. And the, the other person who is here as well uh, is another, is a, is a familiar voice uh, on the show and that's uh, Tom Ord. Tom, how's it going? Doing well. Thanks so much for this chance to have a conversation with my daughter and you. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I I don't know. That's uh, I was excited for that uh possibility. <laughs> I thought it would be it would be a cool time. Uh, I don't know. Maybe one day when I have kids, if I um, find myself saying smart things and people want to talk to me, I would love to have the opportunity to to try to do that on the internet somehow. <laughs> well, it you know it helps to have uh, smart kids. I've got three yeah. smart daughters and Alexa, oh, awesome, my middle daughter. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Well, so I guess um, we just kind of jump right in. Um, you guys recently released, I guess it was a, f a few days ago, maybe about a week ago, um, a book of collected essays called Why the Church of the Nazarene Should Be Fully LGBTQ Plus Affirming. Um, and it's a really cool collection. You guys, uh, I was looking at uh, looking at it before the call and we, you have uh, three different sections throughout that book. Um, one titled Queer Voices, where you have 19 essays. Uh, you have one called Ally Narratives with 47 essays and Scholarly Perspectives uh, with like 24 essays. So all, all in all, about like 90 essays <laughs> contributed uh, to this book. That's pretty uh, That's pretty exciting. That's a, that's a powerful case to bring. 
Yeah, uh, there's quite a diverse uh, set of issues and ideas, but uh, Alexa was really the one who did the nitty gritty work of working through every single essay carefully. So she's the one who should get the lion's share of the praise for putting it all together. Awesome. Yeah, it was well, really great to hear when we put out the call that so many people wanted to contribute, you know, to end up with 90 contributors feels really, really powerful. A real like, you know, amassing of of a witness. Yeah, big time. And for, I guess, so listeners who might not be familiar specifically with um, the Church of the Nazarene, uh, can you, uh, one of you, uh, whoever feels the urge <laughs> um, to kind of fill in maybe, um, just for people who don't know, like, maybe a little bit about the denomination and also kind of the, uh, I don't know the right word, the what kind of what's in the air right now with the denomination? What's the, the tension, the questions that are being kind of wrestled with? Yeah, I'm probably the better one to handle that question. Um, the Church of the Nazarene theologically is similar to the United Methodists. It has a, a theology that's been very influenced by a guy named John Wesley. The denomination was started in 1908 or 1907. It's a debate there. But anyway, uh, early part of the 20th century, there's about 500,000 members of the Church of Nazarene in the U.S. and about 3 million around the world. Um, although it's got a similar theology to United Methodism, it's much more conservative on various social issues, especially queer issues, um, whereas as the United Methodists have been talking about these concerns for decades and are in the middle of a, a rearranging of who they are, uh, the Church of the Nazarene has not been, at least publicly, talking about this. And so drawing together these current and former Nazarenes who are advocating an affirming position uh, is a really historic move. And in at least on many of the authors, it took some real courage for them to come forward because they could definitely lose their jobs if they're, for instance, ordained elders in the denomination. Yeah, I I remember during my time in the Methodist church, um, I kind of had a front row seat to kind of like the first time uh, they voted on the LGBTQ issue. Um, and that was really interesting because that was the first time I had ever worked in a church that was affirming. Um, and like, you know, the, the worship director, uh, Chad, my, my good friend, Chad, um, it's like an openly gay man, uh, on staff. Right. And so kind of, um, just seeing and, and being a part of watching people, um, kind of, I don't know, <laughs> wrestle through this problem, um, or, or question how, however you want to phrase it, um, had a deep impact on me just to see, uh, people, one, um, queer voices, you know, basically seeking like justification for the fact that they exist um, and, and having to watch friends like go through that. Um, and then also then kind of like the ally side as well, kind of coming together and and um, I don't know, it's it's not an easy task. So, yeah, most definitely I, I condemn condemned. Gosh, dang it. <laughs> I can. <laughs> What's commend? There we go. I can do English language. Commend uh, those who have uh, come forth and, um, like you said, put put their their jobs and livelihood on the line uh, for what I think is a really important issue. Yeah. But so I guess then um, the standard kind of 
go-to podcast question with books is uh, I want to know the story behind, you know, why, why this book um, and why now? So why, what was the kind of decision-making process like to decide like, all right, we're pulling the trigger on this. We're going to do it. Alexa, do you want to start with that one? Sure. Um, so uh, Tom and I have been working together uh, in various sort of academic contexts for a long time. And then recently in the past year or two, um, have worked together at um, Sacrosage Press, the publishing company that we run together, um, which has been just a really, really rewarding um, opportunity to you know spend time together and work on our shared interests. Um, but then about, I don't know, maybe six months ago or so, we started thinking that this was the time for us to put out a book through Sacrosage. We had all this, you know, experience working together in, um, you know, sort of uh, progressive religious publishing. Um, and it was really a great coming together of, um, you know, Tom has a lot of experience publishing books and working within the Nazarene denomination. And and also has so many contacts, you know, within the church um, and outside the church. And then I uh, am a queer person. I have left the church, but I have a, a degree in gender studies. And so it was a real sort of like melding of worlds of our two interests overlapping that we could really collaborate on on this project together. Yeah, I would add, too, that for me personally, uh, I went through a trial uh, related to these matters about a year and a half ago. And uh, that trial resulted, interestingly, in me not being officially disciplined for my views. I made an argument that the Church of the Nazarene should become fully affirming, and they didn't kick me out. But uh, the district superintendent, who's basically kind of like my boss, uh, chose to take away my assignment uh, in the denomination and then uh, after several months, decided I could no longer preach anymore. And so when I approached Alexa six months ago or so, I was kind of thinking, okay, how? what's the appropriate response for me in, in this situation? Um, do I allow people in charge to silence my voice because they've silenced so many other voices? Maybe if Alexa and I came together and instead of actually, I firstly thought, well, maybe I should write a book. And then I thought, you know, there's a lot more power in people coming together who've been silenced to tell their story. And so Alexa was the perfect person, obviously, to work with on this. And that's how the, the book emerged. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I, I love it. I think the that's, you know, story is is uh, such a powerful way of of communicating and so I don't know I always like to kind of hear the the story um behind things and uh the I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this question because it's so it's related to story um so I you know I know my own experience growing up in the church um I was I don't ever remember explicitly being told until I got into the Southern Baptist Church I grew up in a Methodist church um that like here's a here's a christian perspective on um like homosexuality lgbtq issues um and it was not an affirming position and for myself i i don't ever recall having any kind of like certain hard set um theological musing or something like that uh in regards and it didn't become more of a live issue for me until my brother uh jordan 
uh, came out when he was in seventh grade, and the church that we were attending kicked us out. So we are at a Southern Baptist church. They said, you are no longer welcome here. Adios. Um, and my brother received like death threats from kids in the youth group, like ridiculous outlandish stuff. And even though at that time, you know, I was in how much older than am I than Jordan? I think I was ninth grade at the time, maybe 10th grade. I didn't have any kind of like theology or logical arguments or anything like that. I just recognized like whatever is happening, this is not cool. Like this doesn't look like and reflect the kind of loving character of God you guys have been telling me about my whole life. Mm. Um, and so that kind of, for me, started to be where um, uh, asking this question wasn't just like an intellectual thing, um, if that makes sense. It Like I, the experience became, and then, you know, um, my other brother, my other brother, uh, Justin, um, identifies as pansexual. Um, so, you know, that, that was an added layer. And then uh, working within um, the Methodist church is really the first time I felt like I had permission to say I'm open and affirming without having to face some kind of repercussions. Um, and my relationship, my friendship with Chad um, and some other members of the uh, LGBTQ plus community that I met during my time in that Methodist church really just... Um, I don't know. I guess that's that's more so when I became like a more vocal ally. Yeah. And so all that to say, um, I'm interested in knowing uh, like your guys' story in regard to these kind of questions um, as well, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, you know, I've uh, got two things that come to my mind. How about if I start with one, Alexa, and then you go and then I'll come with a second one. Is that a good plan to you? Great plan. Okay. Um, I really started taking the, these questions seriously in 1994. I was a seminary student at Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City, and I had to take this course I didn't want to take on Christian education, which was, you know, like a course you would take if you wanted to take a job in a church, uh, I don't know, teaching youth or something or children. And, but I had to take it. So I took it. And a couple other guys in the class said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to explore, in, in those days, we called it the homosexuality question. We ought to explore the homosexuality question and then write up a curriculum for Sunday school based on our findings. And so that's what we did. We read as much material as we could. And we wrote this curriculum in which our kind of the, the basic argument for the curriculum is you have two choices here. You can either be fully affirming, which in those days we didn't use that language, but that's what it amounted to. Or you could be almost fully affirming. You could think it's sinful, but you still had to be accepting and loving and, you know, all yada, yada, yada. And so, you know, we, we weren't brave enough to totally put all our weight on one side of this thing, but we definitely wanted to oppose the condemnation that we were hearing from so many Christians. And that exercise brought me to a fully affirming position as I began to move into a career in a denomination that was not fully affirming and didn't even want to talk about it. So I had to decide, okay, how am I going to be a voice for change without getting kicked out? And I spent the next, you know, almost 20 years working on that issue. So that's that's one important point of my own development. 
Yeah, I would say, Josh, somewhat similar to you, um, your early start. I don't think um, I received a lot of explicit uh, homophobic stances from the church growing up. Um, but there was definitely always the undertone of, of we don't talk about it because it's bad. Um, but of course, you know, I, I was raised in a, a quite a rebellious household. <laughs> uh, so there's no shortage of, of pressure put on those types of ideas from my parents and conversations very vocally um, uh, with my family. And so it was interesting that I never growing up felt as if being queer was would be unaccepted at home. My parents, you know, always uh, left open the possibility that we would marry, you know, not a man or however it would be. But then at church, it just wasn't talked about. And so I didn't talk about it either. Um, until when I was in high school, um, one of our um, small group leaders um, talked about her struggles, you know, with gay thoughts. I don't know how she phrased it at the time. Um, and uh, it was really hard hearing her give this phrasing it as a testimony of how God had helped her overcome that, um, you know, quote unquote overcome um, from her own internalized homophobia because of what the church had put on her. And um, th this youth group leader eventually, you know, came out and, and uh, has left the church because of what she experienced. Um, so it was, it was interesting to always see that uh, there was never any overt acknowledgement that queer people exist unless they were had been cured if that makes sense yeah that's great that actually helps me uh, to set up my second thing i wanted to share and i, I want to get your feedback on this alexa um in 2007 alexa would have been about 12 years old uh, a documentary came out called For the Bible Tells Me So. I remember and this. Do you? Oh, yes. good, because I wasn't sure you did. And so I had Alexa and her older sister, Sydney, watch this. And it was basically a story that looked at you know, Eugene Robinson, who was the first openly gay uh, Episcopal bishop, or maybe not the first, but the most well-known. And it it explored a couple of families that were dealing with their kids having being queer in some way. And I remember watching with Alexa and Sydney, and I remember thinking to myself, am I setting my girls up for them to be, to leave the church? Because mm -hmm. we're not, not in a place where they could talk about this openly and affirm this openly. Am I in, in, asking them to watch this and being obviously in favor of what the message of the documentary was, am I doing them a kind of disservice? Because if they agreed with me, they wouldn't probably fit in the kind of church that I've been raising them in. But you remember that Alexa? Yeah, I do. I, I, there's um a scene in that movie that really sticks out in which they talk about how like homosexual sexual behavior is uh common in the animal kingdom <laughs> so uh, i can clearly picture the scene of like lions there's gay lions there's gay zebras <laughs> so it really left an impact um, I but i it. guess to address your concern that this was you know you started the seed uh that that maybe you know led to us turning our backs so i i'm no longer religious or spiritual in any way but i didn't leave the church over this issue at all it's they're really unconnected for me um and in part, that's why I feel 
so dedicated to coming back to this, you know, ongoing uh, mission and cause in, in the Church of the Nazarene is that, you know, my story doesn't look like this, the stereotypical cookie cutter, you know, I was religious, and then I came out and my parents kicked me out. Um, that there is a lot of nuance in what queer Christians look like or queer former Christians and all the stories are valid and really flesh out, you know, a more complete tapestry of the queer experience. And even though, uh, you know, I don't fit that mold, I want to be able to both represent that diversity of experience to non-Christians and also let other queer, queer Christians feel like they can be any type of way. Hmm. Yeah, I, that makes it, so I want to ask you a question, um, Alexa, recognizing, <laughs> prefacing, sorry, my uh, other, like this Amazon Alexa is getting <laughs> it's jealous. It's I deal with. <laughs> yeah, I took it Jeff out. Jeff Bezos uh, has ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Jeff. <laughs> but uh, that Alexa was getting jealous. But so I want to preface my question by saying that, like, I recognize that perhaps it is coming from a place of, of, uh, privilege because i i'm not a member of the lgbtq community mm -hmm. but i've had this experience more recently so i i used to be a pastor um i stopped being a, a pastor uh geez like i guess just about three years ago now uh maybe um a little bit lesser than that and now i'm a brewer so i make beer Ooh. and so i went from working in the church to working in 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 bars and once I kind of got outside of the church world, I started to notice that a lot of the kind of questions and things that I was putting a lot of time, energy, and effort fighting for while I was in the church, talking with my new friends in the brewery, it was just kind of like, why are you having this conversation? Like, of course, there are queer people. Of course, they belong. Like, you know what I mean? And so it almost became my environment shifted so much where uh, I just having queer friends became normative and like just being in places where having the kind of conversation of like acceptance or not um, was no longer like a common experience, if that makes sense. Um, and also, I mean, I live in the city. I live in Baltimore City, um, tends to be more progressive there's gay pride flags everywhere. Uh, like the churches all have them hanging, you know, on, on their churches and stuff. And so I got to this point where I was like, Oh, like, why, like, do I need to keep having this conversation or do I just voice my opinion by already participating in spaces where people like my brothers and my friend Chad are already welcome. Do you see, do you see what kind of the, the tension there for me? And so then I recognized, I was like, ha, huh, man, because when, you you know, you guys put out this book with within the Nazarene church and it just it sparked back up in me like, ah, this is still a question <laughs> that people are wrestling with uh, within the church world. And I kind of removed myself from it. Um, so, like, I don't know. I don't I don't know how to phrase the question, but do you see kind of the tension there that I'm wrestling with? Like, I feel like when I have. Like, I don't know, none of my queer friends are like banging down the doors of churches to get in. Um, <laughs> they just go to places where people already love and accept them. <laughs> so I don't know, like this, really? there's a tension there. And so I don't, I don't know how to phrase it as a question, just kind of like an internal experience. 
Yeah, um, it really makes me think similarly. So I went to college, I was born in, well, not born, but uh, largely grew up in Idaho um, and then went to college in Boston. And now I live in New York. So I also had a similar experience of, you know, coming from an insular, small town, religious community to all of a sudden the big city, you know, the liberals back east. (laughs) (laughs) And I got really frustrated with a lot of my friends many of whom who had grown up with no religion or with other religions, really having the a simplistic understanding of what evangelicals are like. You know, that all evangelicals, at the time, uh, it was voted for Rick Santorum. <laughs> um, and, you know, were, were super fundamentalists and hated all women. And, you know, on the one hand, I really want to defend this community that I do feel some amount of kinship to and and um am grateful for for what it gave me but then I come back <laughs> and feel like well how much do I want to try to help you and help the way that you're perceived by outsiders when you're not willing to help yourself and you're making a lot of people really hurt you know it just reading a lot of the essays in these in this book um I didn't realize how many other pastors had been kicked out of the Church of the Nazarene like my dad had and had gone through these trials. I didn't realize how widespread it was because I had left the church. So, yeah, I also feel that tension of like, well, how much is this worth saving? And I'm am I the person to save it? Do you have any kind of like thoughts or experience there, Tom? Because I know for you, um, you're still like active within this denomination. And so obviously yeah. you put out a book, so you think it's worth doing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Like, I just, am, I'm just kind of interested if like, it, you know, kind of your thoughts in that regard. Well, one of the questions I get an awful lot from people who are in their thirties or twenties is um, should I stay with the church of the Nazarene? Um, you know, they're LGBTQ affirming, they know that they're still in the minority position in the denomination. They have been criticized strongly and, you know, called names. And they're saying, you know, why should I stay? And a lot of them don't. Uh, but they sometimes come to me and they say, Tom, you stayed. You know, why do you stay? Should I? Um, and my typical answer is, if I was in my 30s, I probably wouldn't stay. I'm, I'm that blunt. Uh, but I care about this group of people. And if I go, there's still going to be young people growing up in this denomination who are going to be facing these issues. And maybe I can create some space and make, see some change for those people. Um, also, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. Uh, a lot of my friendships and my connections are with this group, not all of them. And I've got a bigger sort of community now, but for a lot, a good chunk of my life, uh, uh, many of my friendships and connections were with this denomination. Um, if I left, I'd still be friends with a lot of the people I'm friends with. Um, so, you know, should I leave? <clears throat> About a year or two ago, when I went getting ready to go for this trial, you know, as you know, Josh, I've been through a few of these trials in my life <laughs> for various things. And I came to my wife after I'd been charged yet again and was thinking, you know, 
should I face these charges or just walk away? Uh, and I wanted to make sure she was on board because it's very difficult for her and for my kids, at least in some ways, it's difficult for my kids. I want to make sure they were on board. And, um, and I kind of looked at the way, at, at what I was facing. And I asked myself, will I have a bigger positive impact if I walk away quietly or if I stay and try to make, see changes happen. If I walk away quietly, there'll be some pain involved in that, but a lot less pain than if I stay and try to make change. Uh, but if I have a support network, family, wife, friends, and if I have the kind of platform and voice and all my own kind of, uh, uh, I'll just use the word patience to be able to deal with these strong critics. It might be that my staying, even though I might get kicked out, but my staying could make something good happen. Um, and even if, you know, I got a letter today and found out that I'm kicked out officially this book coming out and the conversations it's initiating and the private conversations among those who wrote for the book who are just like encouraged and thrilled. And I'm getting tons of young people wanting to Facebook friendly friend me because like, finally they know someone who thinks like they do. All that stuff has been really positive. If I'm kicked out tomorrow, it will have been worth it. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think, um, I don't know. I think it, it just kind of speaks to the the character of, of people like yourself, because um, I, I mean, you know, you know me well enough to know all the, you know, multiple reasons that I personally stepped away from vocational ministry, um, but still have, uh, I don't know, I still have this like urge and this desire to share my story and my thoughts and my musings with people. Um, uh, I just haven't found like a way to do that from within the the church system. Like, I don't know that I'm, uh, like mentally strong enough to do that. So <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm glad you I give brought kudos that up. to people. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't want to come across as like my way is the right way for everybody. It's not. It's better for some people to walk away quietly for variety of reasons. It might be who they are, might be their context, whatever. I don't want to set my way up as the only right way. Um, so don't feel any condemnation if you're listening or watching this. If if you walked away quietly rather than, you know, kind of went, went through the crap that I'm going through. So, yeah, I, I guess I'll just stop at that statement. I'll pipe in here, actually. This makes me think back to your um, your comment earlier, Josh, about um, about spending the time in the breweries and why don't you just invest your time in spaces that are queer affirming. Um, so yeah, when you were talking about the book, you'll notice that the vast majority of our contributors are allies. Um, and I think that speaks to some of the real dangers that queer people face, uh, you know, putting their stories out there and it is risking more. And for, um, you know, for an ally or a straight person to, uh, to speak up, th this can be a way in 
that you're like, okay, well, in this space, I'm going to be loud because I can take it. Um, and not everyone, you know, can for various reasons, and it brings up lots of trauma and can be very harmful. But thinking about the way in which you occupy spaces uh, and push against that grain to, yeah, make way for people who maybe don't feel like they're able. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's one thing that I think is is a strength like when and like admittedly I haven't I haven't read <laughs> um I haven't read the volume yet um but based off looking at like kind of the chapter breakdowns and like reading the the different chapter titles and and that kind of stuff um the well the, the like the ally bit really stood out to me um but also I think what's cool about it is the it it seems like there's almost this like inherent understanding that trying to give people straight up logical arguments is not always the most helpful in communicating ideas, right? Like um, there are, are different ways of, of knowing things like logic is helpful. Uh, humans like to pretend that we're rational, um, <laughs> but like there's different things, right? Um, emotion, aesthetics, beauty. And so seeing because I know for me, seeing stories and being involved in such a way where like this kind of like question wasn't just an intellectual thing for me, but rather like this is my everyday experience, like my brothers, my friends, et cetera. Um, that oh, like that, I think, had more of an effect on me than just some kind of like logical argument. Um, I mean, I think I can make a coherent, logical argument using the Bible, whatever, as to why I think people could be LGBTQ affirming and it's biblical or whatever. Um, but for me, really, that experience and the friendships and the getting to know people and hearing other people's stories is really kind of the uh, the thing that, I don't know, changed my mind or my disposition or whatever it is, however that goes. Yeah, I think you're the norm. I mean, I think I've noticed this over the years that most people change their views on queer matters because someone they love convinces them by the way they live, their child, their best friend, their aunt, somebody like that. Um, I'm actually the weird one here. I change my mind on intellectual grounds, on theological grounds. Uh, the person I knew best who was queer in the early 1990s when I was working through this was my brother-in-law, who's not on my list of people who are great people. <laughs> I'll just use the word jerk. I think he's a jerk um, and he's queer. So like if I was going to be convinced by my relationships, I wouldn't have been convinced. For me, it was think thinking theologically, but I'm not the norm. Most people, it's someone they love who comes out and they end up changing their minds. Yeah. Well, so Tom, what if, I mean, I can venture to guess based off knowing your work, but <laughs> for you, uh, intellectually, kind of what was that, what was the tipping point for you? Like, or kind of when you try to make this argument intellectually, where do you kind of uh, hinge your argument well, the first thing I did, and I think the first thing a lot of people do is they say, okay, let me take my Bible and let me go to every passage that seems to directly address some sort of queer issue. 
Now, in my day, again, it, we called it homosexuality. And so it was always male, male, female, female. No one really talked about bi or trans or, you know, that sort of stuff. The closest we got was the passage in which Jesus talks about eunuchs. So what I did is I went to my Bible and I found the seven or eight passages that seem to have something to do with uh, queer issues. And I looked at those issues and I started looking at what scholars had to say about those. And in some of those cases, it seemed pretty clear that what the uh, passages were rejecting were very culturally specific, that uh, there was a practice in which older men had younger boys for sexual partners, and the Apostle Paul was against that. I said to myself, well, that's not like what I typically think of, you know, my two friends, Jim and Bob, who've been married for, you know, in those days, I guess they weren't actually married, but they were partners for a long period of time. That's not some sort of older man, younger boy kind of scenario. These are two people who have mutual love and, you know, they're, they're adults. So that doesn't quite fit. Or, uh, you know, I went to passages that uh, seem like Leviticus that talks about it's, it's, it's sinful for a man to lie with a man. And then I looked at other passages in Leviticus that says it's sinful to wear clothing with two kinds of different kinds of fabric or plant a field with two different kinds of crops. And I thought, well, hold on now. Maybe that was appropriate at one time and place. Maybe if reproduction is the only thing that matters in a sexual relationship, then you want to make sure you have two people who can reproduce. But, you know, these things aren't, we, we don't follow all the rules in Leviticus today, thank God. And also, we don't necessarily think reproduction is the only thing that matters when it comes to sexual relationships. So I just kind of slowly worked my way through those passages. And then I said, okay, well, then what's going to be my approach to scripture? I seem to kind of have a working approach already in mind as I address these things. And that working approach is something like, I'm going to affirm and find helpful those passages that help me to live a good life, that help society live a good life. And that's another way of saying, as you're hinting at, Josh, that I'm going to let love be my hermeneutical key. I think of love as that which promotes well-being. And it's clear to me that loving relationships between same-sex couples can promote their well-being and the well-being of society. So I can accept queer uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, and so then moving from that, I then have to try to deal with all the other Objections people have, you know, like the one I hate the most that I've been seeing this week over and over and over is, well, the Bible is against uh, a gay lifestyle. That's the the common language, gay lifestyle. Like, what is gay lifestyle? You know, I I think what they have in mind is promiscuity. They they imagine gay men running around having sex with everybody all the time. And that's not healthy. And I got no problem with saying, you know, excessive sexual relationships are unhealthy. But um, gay lifestyle, I mean, I've seen the statistics. Statistics are that gay men tend to be more promiscuous. But it's also true that lesbian relationships are less promiscuous than women in straight relationships. So if we were to put up on our, our, our uh, mantle, the ideal least 
promiscuous relationships in the world, it ought to be lesbians. We ought to encourage all women to have lesbian relationships, which of course, you know, that doesn't make any sense. So now I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but that's the way I, I think about scripture and working through these issues. Yeah. When you were talking about the gay lifestyle thing, um, my friend Chad always makes this joke about um, when people use like gay agenda is like another way people phrase it. And yeah. Chad is like, Josh, Every time I go out and I check my mailbox and I still haven't received this year's gay agenda, I don't know what we're doing. Nobody's <laughs> filling me in. And like, <laughs> always, Chad always, always tries to kind of make that, you know, bring light to the situation <laughs> and, uh, and, ma- and make that joke. Um, all right. But on a, on a more serious note, because I do um, with kind of you know, the tension I brought up in myself and, you know, talking about hanging out in spaces where uh, queer folks are already just accepted. Um, I don't want to uh, use that to minimize the very real issues that are still actively going on in society today with like homophobic legislation being passed, transphobic legislation, these kind of things. And so I think one thing that I get excited about in regards to your book is I think the church of today, at least in this country, uh, is voiceless, essentially. It's weak. Unless we're like arguing about cultural wars, the church is kind of, it's not doing great, right? Like I just, and maybe this is, you know, influencing from, I just uh, did a conversation with the Bonhoeffer scholar and we were talking about this and um how like the church, I mean, American Christianity has essentially just kind of gotten in bed with empire, um, so to speak, to use like biblical language. And so I think a book like this um, is almost, it's like an act of resistance saying like, no, the church can have a voice and we're going to do the best that we can to have this voice and speak truth back to power. Um because I think that's what the church is supposed to do. <laughs> and so that's that's the flip side of it for me. It's like, okay, well, how can I empower this uh, church that I feel like has become voiceless and has just become a slave to empire? What does it look like to kind of have that rebellious, uh, you know, theology of resistance that says, no, I'm going to stand with the one that I believe is love. And what that looks like is is this. And so that's, on the flip side mm. of things, that's something I get excited about with a book like this. Um, is that Lexa, you want to speak to that? Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, two things come to mind. I agree. I think it's really uh, the the future of the church lies in in you know the the possibilities of of queerness and of queer affirmation. Like, it's really what do they always say about? being on the wrong side of history or whatever, you know, like in 50 years, people are going to laugh at, at how ridiculous things used to be. Um, but as far as like what, what that looks like now, how to push forward, you know, I think that a lot of our contributors are finding spaces, uh, for our alternatives and, and to push, push their version of church forward. So, um, for instance, there's, uh, one of our, one one of our contributors who's queer, um, she uh, has started with a friend, a um, an organization in Nampa, Idaho, where Tom and I are from, um, for queer youth and like trying to find a space within the community. Um, and they both come from a religious context. I don't think that necessarily the the organization is religious, but, uh, you know, um, 
And the other thing, mm, oh yes, the other my other thought was that one of our contributors, um, Keegan Osinski, wrote this book called Queering, Queering Wesley, Queering the Church. Is that what it's called? I think that is, yeah. Um, which is just such a great philosophical approach, scholarly approach to taking queer theory and taking the holiness tradition and, and theology and uh, really concretely pairing these two together. So in like practical, you know, on the grounds approaches to real people's lives, we can find find purchase and progress there. And then also it all the way to, you know, writing a scholarly book. Um, these are so, there's so much, uh, it's so fruitful of a space. Mm, that's awesome. I, I want to give a response that I think Alexa might disagree with. So I want Have her to respond. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the question was that Josh asked us, it was like, where's the church in, in current discussions about these matters and, and others? And I think what Josh means is probably what most people mean. And that is, what is the organized church? How, how, how it's positioning themselves? So here's going to be my radical proposal that Alexa might not like. I think the church is far bigger than organized religion. And I think Alexa is in the church. Here she is a person who doesn't consider herself spiritual or religious or maybe or even a Christian. And I'm not, not quite sure where she even thinks if there's a God or not. But I think she's doing and living the kind of thing that the church is and does. So even though she doesn't want to have the label, and she would never probably say she's in the church, the way I understand church is this is a movement of people who are following the spirit of love. And Alexa is doing that. So I think she really is a part of the movement of the church. And that means then to answer your question, Josh, that the church really does have a role right now in society. And it's predominantly amongst the queer activists. That's the church at at play. The people who go to a particular building on a Sunday or call themselves Church of the Nazarene, who are not a part of what the Spirit is doing in love, aren't a part of the church, as I understand it. Now, I don't want to come across as like colonizing Alexa and, you know, letting my categories sort of overpower hers, but that's how I, I think about what's going on. What do you think about that, Alexa? Yeah, actually, it makes me come with me on a on a little side quest into queer theory. Okay, good. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna uncover my uh, my master's degree thoughts that I haven't uh, looked at in two years. Okay. <laughs> um, it makes me think a lot of this concept by this queer theorist named Jose Esteban Munoz called disidentification, and um, basically he was looking at um, Latino gay men. And this sort of idea of being part of a group, but not really fully accepted and not putting yourself in it either, you know, on this on this liminal space between part of, but, but not part of. And actually, it kind of reminds me a lot of the, the Christian phrase, like, in this world, but not of the world, you know, this mm. sort of strange relationship of being being part of, but not part of. And I think that that is a, is a great way for, especially for me, you know, I obviously care deeply about the church. I, in some ways I call myself a cultural Christian because, you know, I could still laugh about all the Christian memes. <laughs> I'm, I'm part of this sort of like, you know, dotted line outside the event diagram um, that is part of this group and cares about it. And so maybe I would call myself disidentified with the church. And I think mm. that that, yeah, that is a real site for, for how can we disidentify with, the kind of capital C organization of the church 
that's holding us back and that's where we can branch out. So yes, thank you for for uh, <laughs> following me on a, kind of a rabbit hole. <laughs> no, that's good. That's awesome. It it reminds me too, uh, Tom, kind of the way you're talking and um, the dis- uh, disidentification bit, Alexa. Um, in like I I have a friend named Jace. Uh, he's been on the podcast before. Him and I argue all the time about like ecclesiology, basically, because. I like I made a post recently, right? Like when I when the the brewery that I worked at that I had found a lot of healing and acceptance at um, closed down, like it went under, went out of business. And I posted about how um, that brewery had become my church. And, you know, Jace was quick to try to throw some ecclesiology at me. And, you know, he's a friend, so I can I can handle Jace. And so I made a joke about like, hey, no ecclesiology on my page. But then I actually started to think about it. And I said, well, hmm, let me see. At the brewery, uh, we broke bread together. We shared in people's joys. And we mourned when our friends were sad. We, <laughs> you know, so, so we had these things. Um, we laughed together. We danced together. We did life together. Um, and we even had a statue of St. Brigid, uh, the patron saint of beer on the brew house. Right. And so I was like, this sure seems like what some people call church. Um, and also, I mean, one of the differences with him, uh, or with Jace is, uh, um, basically when I, when I say church, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of more so with Tom, how you're talking. I'm more interested in seeing who is, uh, giving in to the divine Lord towards things that are good and beautiful and true um, and seeking out things like creativity and beauty and novelty um, and being in that brewing space, it sure felt like that. And I don't, yeah. I don't want to try to appropriate to myself that the, um, uh, what was the word you used, Alexa? The, Disidentification. The, yeah. I don't want to try to like, appropriate that in some kind of way but i almost i kind of can see myself in that story because i have so completely at least like removed myself from the kind of christian world that i used to be in um and from like you know i used to fully i you know i had my identity wrapped up with josh as a pastor and i had to like you know bifurcate the two um that that kind of i don't know way of thinking about it like speaks to me <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. I wonder if it also might be helpful for people, especially people who wrote for this book, who either find themselves not worshiping with any kind of Christian community, or at least on the margins in some way, but who kind of feel like, you know, maybe they should in some way. They like they've left the church this is the way they would probably put it. But if you think of as the church as that movement of people who are trying to follow the, the the lure of the spirit, to use your language, toward what's loving and et cetera, then it makes it a little easier to not show up and go to church on a Sunday morning if you think, well, what the church, the true church that I'm a part of may or may not meet on Sunday morning, but it's trying to follow the lure of the loving spirit. Yeah. No, I, I like it. I guess the maybe like a, a good kind of final question um, to kind of be fair to your guys' time and wrap up here would be, um, so 
breaking news, I'm not a part of the Church of the Nazarene. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that we, you know, we might have some listeners that also don't find themselves within the Church of the Nazarene. So as people who are um, passionate about the inclusion of our uh, queer brothers and, and sisters and non-binary, um, whatever language people are most comfortable with, uh, but also want to support this issue within the Nazarene Church. How can we both? How can we best do that? Tom, this one's on you because uh, I'm also not part of the Church of the Nazarene. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would. I guess I. I would. I'll answer your question by not being that specific, but maybe by not being specific, it'll be more applicable. All right. Um, in general, if a person is part of a group and some portion of the group they find that they disagree with, you know, maybe they're in the Boy Scouts and their Boy Scouts group has a uh, no queer policy, and so they don't want any boys in the in the group who are gay. Um, they have a decision to make. Are they going to leave the group in protest, which is definitely legitimate, or are they going to stay in the group and try to change the rules, which is also legitimate? Um, I think as people think about the queer issues and and religion in general, Christianity in particular, and whatever group they have some sort of alignment with, whether it's a formal denomination like, you know, I don't know, uh, First Baptist Church or whatever, or it's kind of more of a loose association, you know, I, I consider myself a Christian, but I don't go to church kind of a thing. Um, maybe the question you should ask yourself is, uh, where you're at right now, do you think it's better to just kind of shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else? Maybe that's where you're at personally, and that's the most healthy thing to do. I got no problem with that. Or maybe the answer is to try to stay in that group, despite its flaws, and try to make changes. Maybe there's something you see about the group that's valuable, and uh, you want to try to preserve what's valuable while trying to change that which seems to be harmful. Um, that's what this book, at least from my perspective, is trying to do. Everybody who wrote for it might not share that particular view. But for me, it's kind of like, okay, this group, I'm a minority voice. It's got this Church of Nazarene. They've got some things I like, some things I don't like. Uh, I could walk away silently into the night. Well, maybe not silently in my case, but the more, most people could. Or... I could try to stay and change what I think is harmful and because there's still something good about this group that I want to preserve. Yeah. You, you sound like a good uh, constructive postmodernist, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. How can we have, how can we have both roots and wings? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. I, no, I, I like it. And actually it's, it's funny because, you know, this conversation and, and also some uh, others I've been having with um, with friends and stuff has been kind of starting to challenge um, a lot of my thinking uh, in this regard. And I think there was a time when uh, just kind of stepping away from things and not putting in the, the energy and effort was probably the best thing to do. 
um, for my, especially for my own mental health. Like I was yep. in therapy, like all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, more recently, uh, I, I mean, even within like the past few months, I've just felt this um, desire, lure, call, whatever you want to, whatever language you like, um, towards being, uh, trying to re-enter some of those spaces um, and try to be a, a positive uh, voice for change. I don't know what that looks like. Um, you know, yeah. I don't, I definitely don't think I'm going to go be a pastor again. <laughs> I don't think, yeah. I don't think I can handle it. And I think my wife might divorce me <laughs> if I did that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, all that to say, like, I'm, I'm excited um, for this new book. I'm excited for like the kind of work that uh, you guys are doing and, and putting out there. And it's, um, I don't know. I find it helpful and inspiring and uh, makes me want to be a part of it. So great. Thank well, you thanks guys for hosting yeah. us for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So wonderful. Yeah, cool. I'll I'll be sure to to let you guys know once it goes uh public and um you know, listeners uh, another great way to support would you can just go buy the book. <laughs> That's going to be helpful. Uh you know, buy the book, maybe uh find some friends, go out, you know, have a, a beer or if you don't do beer, wine or cocktail or if alcohol is not your thing because you're a good nazarene like thomas j ord <laughs> then have some sparkling water <laughs> whatever it tea, is that you tea. like tea, some good tea yeah. uh and and continue these kind of conversations um but yeah <laughs> thanks, <laughs> anyways Josh. thank you guys both so much for hanging out and, and listeners as always uh thanks for being here today and and for hanging out and all the fun books and resources uh note in the conversation will be in the show notes so Go there and, and have some fun. But in the meantime, go in peace, friends. Peace.